If you don't know who I am, I'm Jeremy Humble. I'm one of the elders here at Crossbridge, um, a life group leader. Shout out to my guys. Love you guys. And I'm privileged to be a member of our preaching team. Or at least I used to think I was privileged to be a member of the preaching team. Um, It was recently I realized that we're going to close out this series by doing a message on gluttony just a few weeks after Thanksgiving and one week exactly from Christmas. I kind of actually envisioned that I'd be standing up here uh, while you booed me and pelted me with Christmas cookies. A message on gluttony during this season just seems a little too on the nose. Uh, But it turned out that dodging frosted Christmas trees ended up kind of being the least of my worries. Like most of the messages in this series, I kind of thought I knew where I was going to be going with things, what this message was going to be about, and what we'd be talking about. But it turned out that when it came time to dig into it and really learn what this was about, something that I thought seemed so simple wasn't really so simple at all. So when I say gluttony, what's the first thing that pops into your head? Excess. Excess, okay. Eating, food, lots of food, yes. Tacos, Tacos, love it. Overindulgence. Yeah, those are all, that's pretty much what goes into my head. You know what the first thing that popped into my head was when I thought of gluttony? Does anybody know who this is? That is Joey Chestnut. He's the number one ranked competitive eater in the world. Yes, that is a thing, competitive eating. He holds the world record for the most hot dogs eaten for the, at the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest with eating 76 hot dogs in 10 minutes. So here's some of the other records that Joey Chestnut holds. He ate 182 wings in 30 minutes, 23 cheesesteaks in 10 minutes, 53 Taco Bell tacos in 10 minutes. I I can't even imagine the damage that did inside. And he ate 121 Twinkies in just six minutes. And he holds many, many more records. I mean, that's surely the very definition of gluttony, right? Or maybe like me, you kind of had the image of, anybody see that TLC, TLC show, My 600-Pound Life? Oh, gosh. That's kind of what I had in my head. And I think for most of us, it's probably too easy to just stop right there, and that's our definition of gluttony. And honestly, that would make things really easy on me. That makes it a very short message. Hey, guys, don't two-hand shovel food into your face and don't end up on a TLC show because you weigh 700 pounds. Thanks for coming. We'll see you on Christmas Eve at 4 p.m. That's a pretty easy message. But that seems a little too easy, right? Are you wondering why gluttony is even on this list of seven capital vices? So we're to week seven. You know what's not one of the seven vices that we've talked about? You know what's not on here? Stealing's not on here. Murdering, not on here. Adultery, not on the list. Kind of seems like these are all a bigger deal than gluttony, right? Gluttony is never even mentioned in the New Testament in any of the multiple lists of sins to be wary of. The only gluttony reference that there is even mentioned and associated with Jesus is when he and his followers are actually accused of being gluttons. When we see the word gluttonous or gluttons in the Bible, it's almost always immediately paired with the word drunkards. There's really no definition in in the Bible of gluttony. It's not really talked about a whole lot, but yet it's on this list of seven capital vices. 
Gluttony, like most of the vices that we've been talking about, is difficult precisely because there's no clear-cut black and white lines that we can paint when we try to define it. And I've kept thinking about a passage we read two weeks ago in Romans 14, where Paul says to a church arguing over food issues, I know and am convinced on the authority of the Lord Jesus that no food in and of itself is wrong to eat. But if someone believes it is wrong, then for that person, it is wrong. Not super clear cut right there. I love this quote from William H. Williamson. The line between virtue and vice is subtle. And its subtlety is an aspect of its deadliness. So what is it about gluttony that makes it so deadly? When it comes to gluttony, it's more about the state of our heart than how much we eat. Actually, the root of gluttony, the root word of gluttony, glut, just means an excessive quantity. An excessive pleasure in what we eat or drink is what we focused on for much of human history because for the vast majority of people throughout human history, being able to afford to be gluttonous in any other way is simply unthinkable. It's unaffordable. But I think it's fair to say that today in our culture, most of us here today can afford gluttony and can afford to glut ourselves on all sorts of things. We can afford to glut ourselves on our hobbies, the media that we consume, the sports that we watch or have our kids in, social media, and many, many other things. But for today's purpose, we're just going to really focus on food and drink, but the principles of what we're talking about today can easily be applied to other areas in our life. And it's well worth considering whether we're gluttonous in other areas in our life. At least, I know that's true for me, so maybe it is for you too. So let's start here this morning. We know that food in and of itself is, has been made desirable for us by God because at the beginning of creation, we read in Genesis 2.9 that the Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. Isn't that great news? I don't have to stand up here and tell you that you have to eat locusts and honey or bread and water for the rest of your life. We actually see this in the life of Jesus, too. He feasted so much that some people accused him of gluttony. Jesus talks about them in Matthew 11. The Son of Man, on the other hand, feasts and drinks. And you say, he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and other sinners. Jesus feasted with those around him. And because the Pharisees used quantity as their only measurement, they called him a glutton. But we know that Jesus was not a glutton. So it's not completely about what we eat or how much we eat, but rather it's our relationship with the pleasure that things can provide us that's the problem. As Rebecca DeYoung puts it, fundamentally, gluttony is primarily not about how much we're eating, but how much pleasure we take in eating and why. Food was, was created for us and can be both good for us and enjoyable to eat, but like all good things, it can become twisted to become something corrupted and sinful. Gluttony creeps in when the pleasure that we seek begins to take control of our hearts and our lives. This begins to change our relationship with God and with others. It begins to focus our attention from the God who has blessed us to what pleasure we can derive from what God has blessed us with. Gluttony looks to food or to drink to satisfy some deeper craving in life, whether it's eating for comfort, for pleasure, for purpose, or trying to gain control. 
It's about making a habit of eating in a way that distorts our relationship with food, with God, and with others. Interestingly, gluttony is arguably part of the very origin of sin in the Bible. God told Adam and Eve that they could eat from any of the trees in the Garden of Eden, except for one. That's literally the only rule that he gives them. But Genesis 3.6 tells us Eve sees the fruit of the tree was beautiful, and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. Rather than eat the fruit freely given to them, Eve and Adam chose to eat what they were forbidden from eating. They fulfilled their own desires, the desire to eat the delicious food, and desire to gain control of their lives and becoming as God. I wonder if this same desire for pleasure and control is at the root of the unhealthy relationship we have with food and drink in the U.S. According to the CDC, approximately 42% of Americans are obese. About 9% of Americans will be diagnosed with an eating disorder in their life. 11% of the U.S. population has diabetes, and another 30% has prediabetes. The diet industry in the United States is about 60 to $70 billion a year industry. In 2019, 26% of people 18 and over reported binge drinking alcohol at least once in the previous month. Over 5% of those 12 and under, 12 and older, sorry, and <laughs> 12 and under would be even, even bigger an issue, but honestly, how disturbing is it that we're setting this bar at 12 and over? Over 5% have an alcohol use disorder. These are all some significant red flags that we have serious issues with our relationship with food and drink. While they might seem like quantity issues, they are all rooted in heart issues of seeking control and pleasure. So again, what does gluttony really look like? We've gone to Gregory the Great several times throughout this series, and he came up with this line that I think does a great job of dividing out the expressions of gluttony. He says, too daintily, too sumptuously, too hastily, too greedily, too much. Or another way of breaking down these same ideas and breaking them out is a use of a great acronym. I love acronyms because it actually helps me remember things because I'm not really good about remembering things. But I, we can use the acronym of FRESH. FRESH stands for, we have fastidiously. Fastidiously is having high and often capricious difficulties, um, being difficult to please. Ravenously is being very eager or greedy for food, satisfaction or gratification. Excessively, we pretty much know this, right? Exceedingly what is usual, proper, necessary, or normal. Sumptuously is extremely costly, rich, luxurious, luxurious or magnificent. And hastily eating too quickly or acting too quickly, overly eager or impatient. Each of these represents a different way that gluttony may be expressed in our life. Each is a way that our relationship with food can be twisted into something that distorts our relationship with God and the people around of us. So let's start with fastidiously. Or kind of this is like the too pickly or being difficult to please. Eating too daintily or too fastidiously may not be something you've ever even considered as being gluttony. This has a lot to do with what we eat. C.S. Lewis talks about this brilliantly in his book, The Screwtape Letters. 
In the section on gluttony, there's these two demons, and they're actually gloating to each other that they've convinced humanity that gluttony is no longer an issue for humanity because they are no longer overeating. But instead, they discuss a woman who is taken by the gluttony of daintiness, as they describe it, and she is described as an absolute terror both to hostesses and to servants. When food is brought to her, she constantly turns it down, saying, Oh, please, please, all I want is a cup of tea, weak, but not too weak, and the teeniest, weeniest bit of really crisp toast. I think we all know someone like this, right? We've probably been out to eat with them, maybe. They're the one that they're going to order the meal, and they've got 20 different substitutions or particularities that they're going to ask for for their food. And when it doesn't come back just the way they want it, they're going to send it back like three or four times to the back to have it come out. And meanwhile, you're like, please don't spit in my food when, you know, you bring hers back out. Um, But, you know, they're not sending it back because they have legitimate allergies or anything like that, but they have these tedious preferences that they have. Now, I'm not saying that it's not okay to have preferences. Look, I don't want onions on my cheeseburger. I just don't. So I'm going to ask for them not to put cheeseburger, not onions on my cheeseburger. If it comes out, I'm going to pick them off, though. It's not a big deal. But if you find yourself regularly insisting on specific qualities of food or brands of food or drink, telling your host that you don't eat any of the food that they've spent all of their time preparing for you, or you're just simply routinely a picky eater that can never be satisfied. You may be indulging in the gluttony of fastidiousness. This can take all sorts of forms, including ones that we couch in terms of healthy eating. Now again, I'm not talking about allergy issues or legitimate health issues. Those are not about pleasure or preference. You know, if you turn down that peanut butter cookie because the peanut butter is going to send you into anaphylactic shock, the gluten is going to trigger your um, celiac disease, and the sugar is going to put you into a diabetic coma, that's okay. That's good judgment not to eat that cookie. But when eating becomes about your expectation to gain a very specific pleasure, and your determination to get that pleasure begins to dominate your eating, gluttony may be an issue in your life. Here's a question you can ask yourself to determine if this is present in your life. Ask if your eating experience would be spoiled if you don't get to eat or drink exactly what you expect, like, or want. All right, now for those of you who wrote out this acronym FRESH in your notes and you really like order, I'm going to apologize because I'm not going to do this in order. And if that makes you angry, then I would strongly suggest you go listen to Becky's message from last week, and then you can come apologize to me later, okay? All right, so (laughs) next we're going to talk about sumptuously. Much like fastidiousness, sumptuousness relates to what we eat rather than how we eat. And again, going back to what Merriam-Webster defines as sumptuous as, it's extremely costly, rich, luxurious, or magnificent. Costly, rich, or luxurious covers a whole lot of ground. Do your tastes run expensive in what you eat or drink? Barkley Prime's $120 YU beef, truffle butter, and foie gras cheesesteak certainly hits the notes of costly, rich, and luxurious. But you know what's also sumptuous? That incredibly rich and filling fried Twinkie down at the county fair that you can get for six bucks. If we compare the typical American diet to the rest of the world, we eat way more fried food fatty foods, foods laden with butter, hello, Paula Dean, sugary foods, all extremely rich foods that satiate our appetites and fill our bellies. 
All it takes is a few hours watching the Food Network or the commercials on TV to realize just how sumptuous many of our eating habits have become. Recently, I saw a commercial for the new Italian mozzarella triple, triple cheeseburger at Wendy's that looks amazing, but is just dripping with fat. A Starbucks venti peppermint white chocolate mocha frappuccino is loaded with a quarter of the fat you need in your daily diet and nearly a half cup of sugar. If you've watched the Food Network, you've probably seen these competitions, and almost every single one, one of the primary criticisms they're going to give to somebody at some point is that it wasn't seasoned properly enough. They didn't load that thing up with enough salt. Our food is incredibly sumptuous, just jam-packed with fat, sugar, and salt, designed to make our food as flavor-packed and stomach-satiating as possible. Our food, it just screams sumptuousness. While food was created by God to be good to eat, that is not its primary purpose. The pleasure of food, how it tastes on our tongue and how it fills our bellies, was not meant to be an end in itself. Food is fuel for our body, a connection to God, and a symbol of our reliance on him. We see this last part vividly when the fledgling Jewish nation is out in the middle of the desert after they've been freed by Egypt. God sends enough food in the form of manna for them each day for each of them, and only that day. This taught them to rely on God for their daily bread. But the people, they eventually complain that their food isn't sumptuous enough for them, and they desire meat as well. They lose sight of the miracle of God's provision, and they complain that while their needs are being met, the desire for richer, tastier, more filling food to please themselves with is not being met. So God actually punishes them by promising that he will send them so much meat that they will gag from the taste of it over the next month. When the self-indulgence and the cost, richness, or luxury of your food supersedes the primary purpose of providing nourishment to your body and pointing you to a relationship and a reliance on God, then the gluttony of sumptuousness may be an issue in your life. Now, the rest of our fresh gluttony acronym probably feels more familiar to most of us. The R is for eating ravenously. This greedy eating is all about taking or eating food quickly to hoard it in order to make sure that we get enough. We get what we want. Think about the person who runs to the front of the buffet line so that they can make sure they get the food that they want. Or the person who, when they go through at the church potluck, they're going to pile their plate high the first time around because they don't want to come back later and be disappointed because what they want is no longer there. Have you ever ordered a pizza with a group of people? And as the pieces comes, you're looking at the number of pieces, and you start doing that math in your head of, all right, how many pieces for each person? And you look over, and the person over here has twice as many. Is that calculation already? But honestly, all these examples, they're kind of easy for me to dismiss. As I was writing this, I'm like, yeah, that's not me. I'm not the one that runs up to the front. I let the kids do that. Um, but that was kind of easy for me to dismiss and be like, you know what, a ravenousness, that's not my issue. But as I was working through this message, I couldn't help but think of not just the food that we eat, but the food that we don't eat. The average household in the United States wastes about 32% of their food. Food that goes bad before it can even be made, or just too much is made, so we just scrape it into the trash at the end of dinner. That bag of lettuce that's now like a $7 bag of lettuce, that's sitting in the crisper drawer turning into mush before it even gets opened. 
How is this not ravenous or greedy eating? All of this is while over 34 million people in the United States, 9 million of which are children, are food insecure. That's about 10% of our population. We take and dispose of almost one-third of the food we buy while 34 million people in our own country are hungry. Let me be honest. <laughs> the best and worst part of preparing a message, and for those of you on the preaching team, you already know this, um, the best and worst part is how God always manages to wreck my heart in some way that I'm not expecting. Writing this message, thinking about all the food in my fridge that I know I'm going to throw out, started to make me sick to my stomach. Thinking about all the families, not just the United States, but the tens of millions and hundreds of millions of people around the world that would be hungry tonight while food rots in my refrigerator and goes bad in my cupboard made me feel really uncomfortable and brokenhearted. How is this not gluttony? How is this not greedy eating? The E in our fresh acronym, this one's probably the easiest. This is the excessive eating. This is kind of what we all shouted out when we first started. This type of gluttony is probably the easiest one to identify, and it's probably the one that we all think of first. It's the constant eating past the point of need. It's when your body starts to feel full, but you know, you loosen the belt one more notch to eat that last piece of pie. When you're asked at the food register if you like to supersize it, which we don't do anymore, but, you know, do you want to make that a large? Yep, absolutely. When you always have to have the appetizer, the salad, the entree, and the dessert. I think we all understand this one pretty innately already, though. And honestly, as a society, it's the one aspect of gluttony that we collectively despise, ridicule, and condemn. We know that overeating isn't good, and yet... You know what happens when foreign visitors come to our country? They're just routinely flabbergasted at the portion size of all of our food. And how easy is it to sit down with like a box of cookies and before you know it, that entire box is gone? As I said earlier, our waistline doesn't necessarily mean that we're gluttonous, but when 42% of Americans fit that classification of obese, it's a pretty strong indicator that many of us are probably eating excessively. Lastly, the H in fresh is hasty. The hasty eater can come in a few different forms. First is what I think of as that someone that's shoveling that food into their mouth, kind of Joey Chestnut doing that, you know, competition thing, just shoveling that food in. Someone stuffing their face as fast as they can. And I stand up here saying that like it's something that's repulsive to me and I've never done it in my life, and yet I can distinctly say that 6th and 7th grade of middle school trained me to eat exactly in this way. We had 22 minutes for lunch. That included getting to lunch, getting stuff out of your locker, standing in line, sitting down, eating, taking care of your trade, 22 minutes. So every day I was forced to shovel food down my gullet as quickly as possible, and to this day, I definitely eat hastily. I definitely eat fast. I'm almost always the first one done eating in any group. But another form of hasty eating is simply not being willing to eat, wait to eat. My daughter and I are recently watching the movie A Christmas Story, and there's that scene where the turkey's ready and the dad's sneaking in to grab some before everyone else, and he gets yelled at because he's not waiting. He's not willing to wait. He loves turkey so much. But another great example of hasty eating or not being able to wait is the story of Jacob and Esau in the Bible. If you remember, Esau is out hunting, and he comes back, and he's hungry. And his brother, Jacob, 
meets him, and he offers to give him some stew. He's made some stew. He gives him some stew and says, if I give this to you, I'll trade it to you for your birthright. And Esau, rather than waiting to just make his own meal or to eat with the rest of the family, he trades his birthright in order to eat that stew right then. This is hasty eating. When we look at these five different types of gluttony, fastidiousness, ravenousness, excessiveness, sumptuousness, and hastiness, we see two, fastidiousness and sumptuousness, that affect what we eat, and three, ravenousness, excessiveness, and hastiness that affect how we eat. But the real issue between all five of these isn't the what or the how, but the why. Why do we eat the things that we eat? Why do we eat the way that we eat? When was the last time that you sat down and really thought about and examined the why behind what and how you eat? Are you eating with the intent of bringing yourself pleasure or elevating your own immediate desires over other good things that God may have planned for you? Now, a few years ago, I wanted to lose some weight. I was a little bit over what I wanted to, to be weighing. Um, I didn't really like the way that I looked. So, you know, I tried dieting, a couple different diets. I tried changing what I was eating. I tried um, a few other different things. But no matter where I ended up, I'd lose some weight, and then I'd put it back on, plus a few additional pounds. Um, and it turns out I have a kind of a sweet tooth. Um, no matter what I did to look better, I always ended up putting that weight on because I couldn't resist eating that sweet stuff, eating those desserts, eating that absolutely delicious frappuccino. But about three years ago, about this time of year, I found myself starting to crash randomly. Um, one moment I'd be awake, and then within about a few minutes later, all of a sudden I couldn't even stay awake. I'd be sound asleep, and I had no way to fight that. Now I was sleeping enough at night, so it wasn't a lack of sleep, but I was crashing and eventually I figured out there was actually a pattern to my energy crashes. And it really shouldn't have been that difficult to figure out. It was this time of year, and I was eating a ton of Christmas cookies and candy canes and pie and all the other amazing stuff that we get to have during this time of year. And within about 15 or 20 minutes of indulging in all that sugar, I was out like a light. And so what had happened was I realized that I was actually well on the way to diabetes. And I was probably already pre-diabetic at that point because I just was eating so much sugar on a routine basis. It concerned me enough that I began to cut that sweet stuff out of my diet. And by doing just this, I lost about 20 pounds or so over the next three months. But more importantly, I was no longer crashing and falling asleep, and I felt a lot better. Looking back, all that sugary food not only tasted great, but indulging in those sweet treats felt like rewards for dealing with my job and life and all the stresses that I was feeling at that time. Now it's three years later, and I pretty much still stick with that. I don't eat a lot of sweet stuff. I don't drink soda. And the weight has stayed off, mostly. I eat a little bit too much fast food still. But the difference is not about the what or the how, but the difference ended up being the why. The weight and how I looked was no longer the goal, and it is no longer the goal of the motivation for me. I realized that the temporary pleasure of that sugar did nothing to solve the stress in my life. The stress was driven by much deeper issues than what food could fill. The motivation now, though, it's my health and my family. 
I realized that what I was eating and how I was eating was putting my desire for sweet, sugary foods that satisfied my taste buds above my desire to be healthy and present for my family and for my friends around me. It's only when we can identify the why between what and how we eat that we can not only determine our issues with eating, but enable true change. You see, just like the other vices that we've talked about over the last few weeks, there's always going to be some deeper need in our lives that we're trying to fill when we find ourselves trapped by these vices. There's a reason that there's a trope of a person drowning their sorrows in a bottle of beer or in a gallon of ice cream. It's because we seek out the comforts of fatty, sugary, salty food when we're stressed, depressed, and exhausted. We may be fastidious, greedy, excessive, or hasty if our lives feel out of control due to traumatic events in our lives, or we've suffered rejection and loneliness. We may seek to control some small aspect of our life by how or what we eat. Instead of turning to God and being satisfied by what he provides for us, we grow impatient and we settle for and eventually crave the quick physical comforts. But just like the other vices, the comfort and pleasure we receive only temporarily satisfies. But ultimately, it leaves us feeling empty again. It seems so good going in. But very quickly, the enjoyment of all that flavor, all that stuff, it's gone. And it's just food being broken down by our bodies. And it's an afterthought. So we become stuck in this pattern of needing more and more to try and fill the ever-growing hole in our life. When we accept physical pleasure as a replacement for spiritual fulfillment, we will always be left empty and wanting. If you'd like a good tool for evaluating whether gluttony is an issue for you, Augustine of Hippo, known as St. Augustine, helpfully gives us three questions we can ask ourselves to help determine if we have an inappropriate relationship with the pleasures of eating and drinking. The first question is, are we eating in a way that contributes to or at least maintains our overall health and well-being? If we are eating foods that we find pleasurable despite knowing that it is damaging our body, that's a red flag that we should pay attention to. If we're eating for pleasure rather than for the good things that food can do for our body, this is an indication that we've put the pleasure of food above the good that God has created and intended. When we become self-indulgent to the point of mistreating our body, we demonstrate a destructive self-love that God does not desire for us. The second question is, how does what we eat or how we eat affect those around us? What we eat and how we eat doesn't just affect our own personal health, it affects both our family and our community as well. If what we eat and how we eat has a negative impact on our family, friends, and our community, then gluttony may be an issue for us. As Rebecca DeYoung puts it, if we willingly flout justice, generosity, or even etiquette just to get our taste buds on some delicious morsel, we run afoul of this guideline. If we are willing to damage or deprive others to gratify our own desire for pleasure, we should recognize this as a symptom of gluttony. The third question Augustine asks is, is what we eat and how we eat honoring the spiritual purpose for which we are created? Each of us have been gifted 
with certain spiritual gifts. We are in different vocations. We're tasked with different responsibilities in life, depending on where we are in life. And each of these, how and what we eat, may differ, and it may be honoring to God in different ways, depending on where we are in life. Someone gifted with a spiritual gift of hospitality, they may be asked by God to feast with others on a more regular basis. While a pastor or a monk may be feel called to celebrate the discipline of fasting as a spiritual discipline more in their life. A high-level athlete may eat large amounts of food that's nutritious and powers their athletic endeavors. A pregnant mother, she's eating not just for herself, but for her baby as well. And I believe that Augustine's first guideline also comes into play here. When we eat appropriately and do so in a way that leads to better health, we are better able to do what God calls us to do. If we look at what and how we eat, is it more about what brings you pleasure or is it more about how it enables you to love God and love others? Every week we stand up here and we tell you that what we want for each one of you is to take one step forward in your faith. If you go through these guidelines and you realize that there may be some areas that you need to work on along with me, um, then the question is, what are some things you can do in order to take that step? And if you're like me, I've checked off like every single one of these, so... If, you, if you're feeling bad about that, don't. Uh, I'm in the same boat. But first, I do want to actually pause for just one second because the vice of gluttony actually gets a little bit tricky simply because it involves something that we need to survive. All the other vices, you can just kind of put those aside and not indulge in them and just say, I'm going to cut this off. Where this gets a little tricky. If you have an issue with gluttony, you, you can't exactly just stop eating. Further, eating disorders and alcoholism are incredibly serious things. There's often deep trauma and hurt associated with them, and addressing those in a healthy way is something we would strongly recommend that you do alongside a professional therapist and nutritionist. So what we're talking about this morning is great to dive into, but if you have an eating disorder or something serious, I'm not talking to you specifically. This is something that you need to go deeper with somebody else as a professional as well. Some of these guidelines can be helpful, but I'm not going to stand up here and tell you just to do something that's unhealthy and it can be dangerous. So please go do this with a therapist and a nutritionist. But wherever you fall on this spectrum of gluttony or in unhealthy relationships with food and drink, please be aware that what the enemy wants more than anything is to shame you. And sadly, the truth is, and we're well aware of this, the world's only going to be ha so happy to jump in and join in on that shaming. But what God desires and what we desire is not for shame to be used as a tool to simply drive this cycle, but rather what we desire is freedom. Food and drink do not need to control you and continue to hollow you out. God offers something much better and everlasting. So what are some of these steps that you can take if you found gluttony being an issue in your life? Here are some practical steps that you can take to help change your relationship with food and drink and start to bring it back in alignment with God's intention and purpose. Step one, give thanks. Give thanks. Now, this kind of feels old-fashioned, right? It kind of evokes this image of sitting down with the family, sitting there before you eat with the hands around the table, um, giving the stink eye to somebody who started eating before you prayed. But honestly, this can be a really great practice because taking the time to sit down and pray before you eat and give thanks to God before eating, reminds us that food is a gift from God. It reminds us that he is our provider and that our food and drink is meant for the betterment of us and to provide us with what we need 
to live the life that God desires for us. Step two, slow down. Another exercise I like part of, as part of this is to take a meal and simply slow down. Cut your food into smaller pieces. And as you slowly eat this, envision every step it took to get that food onto your plate. This is another opportunity to give thanks for the effort and all the things that were needed to happen and make that food get on your table. When you start to take the time to think about the farmer who tilled the soil to plant the seeds to grow that wheat, and then the rain that God provided to help grow that wheat, and then the farmhands that came along and harvested that wheat and then processed it and then transported it as just one component as the bread for the bread that's on your plate and think about all the steps it takes and all the people involved you start to appreciate what that is and rather than just an end in itself and a tool for our pleasure we can grow to appreciate food and drink as a daily miracle that sustains us now of course these first two tools especially they can become kind of stale and meaningless if we allow them to just the quick you know, prayer, okay, yeah, get it out of the way so we can eat now. But if we create these habits, it can help us to slow down, refocus, and redefine our relationship with food. All right, step three, set aside time. Now, I know you're all going to think right now. Set aside time for occasional fasting. I know, Jeremy, I knew it was coming. You're going to tell me to stop eating. Look, fasting allows us to break our eating cycles and take a period of time to take our focus off of food and put our focus on God. In John 6.35, Jesus reminds us that he is all we truly need when he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty again. God not only provides for our physical needs, more importantly, he provides for our deepest spiritual needs. When we fast, it's important to remember that it's not about just not eating. That's not what fasting is. Fasting is about using the time we'd normally be eating by refocusing our attention to God and listening to his voice into our life. If you're anything like me, your typical day is filled with so much activity and so much going on that you may get to the end of your day and realize that you never thought about God once. Or maybe worse, we don't even think about that at all. But if you go a day or more without eating, those small pangs of hunger that you get throughout the day suddenly become a trigger to remind you to spend time with God, and to reorient our attention to him. What if, on a daily basis, we hungered for time of God more than we hungered for food? All right, step four. Set aside time for feasting. All right, does it surprise you that in a message about gluttony, I'm actually talking and suggesting about feasting with you as a way to combat gluttony? I bet you didn't see that one coming when we started this message. It's important to remember that that food itself is not the problem. It's our relationship with food. We see God ordering the Israelites to observe all sorts of festivals and feasts in the Bible. In fact, Jesus in the New Testament, he spends so much time feasting with people that, again, the Pharisees accuse him of actually being a glutton. And we know that Jesus, he's not just eating bread and water. That's not what he's feasting on. We know that his first miracle was at the wedding when he turned water into wine. And he didn't just turn water into wine, he turned water into the best wine. So Jesus knew how to party. But it's important to remember that feasting is a communal thing. 
So I'm going to urge you, don't feast alone. Feasting isn't just indulging in food. Feasting is about enjoying the food with others and celebrating food. Feast with the people around you. Celebrate the gifts that God has given you by sharing those gifts with others. Feasting reminds us the gift of food isn't just meant as a gift for us, but as a gift that allows us to live out our purpose with and for those around us. And I'd urge you, bring in others too that might need that community to feast with. Actually, you know what I have planned for tonight? Tonight, I'm going to get together with a group of guys that I really love, and we are going to eat a whole bunch of chicken wings with hot sauce. Hot sauce that's hard enough to make us regret it just a little bit. And we're going to laugh together, we're going to enjoy each other's friendship, and we're going to build each other up. So yeah, on a day where I'm talking about gluttony, a week ago today, I planned to get together with a bunch of guys and feast a little bit. Lastly, step five. View the Lord's Supper as a gluttony buster. Every week, we take communion together, and it serves as a standard against gluttony in so many ways. As we eat the bread and drink the juice, we do so as a reminder of Christ's sacrifice for us and the wonderful gift of forgiveness and life that he offers. It's a practice that reminds us that food is not an end in itself, but a reminder that at our very core, we need Jesus. And as we gather around the table, it's an express rejection of ravenousness as we all share equally with other believers together, sharing in communion. We reject hastiness when we take the time to give thanks and reflect on our lives and what God has done for us. There's no fastidiousness as we all eat and drink the same thing together. There's nothing sumptuous about the simplicity of the bread and the juice. And the regulated portions remind us of the beauty of self-control and keeps us from excessiveness. This morning, as we prepare to receive communion together, take a moment before coming forward to reflect on the areas where this vice of gluttony may have a hold on you. Is there one of those five areas where you find your relationship with food and drink twisted into something unhealthy and separating you from what God truly desires in your life? If so, as you come forward, Offer that up to God and celebrate communion and the true soul fulfillment that it represents. If you want prayer for any of these issues or anything, we'd love to pray with you over in our prayer area. Would you guys stand and pray with me? God, we thank you for beautiful gifts, amazing, delicious bounties that you give to us. Thank you that it teaches us to rely on you and everything that you provide. Lord, as we come together and join the table and take communion together, thank you for the gift of your son and what it reminds us. And thank you for the gift of communion that teaches us a reliance on you and teaching us that you are the one that satisfies us. If you've chosen to follow Jesus, when you're ready, come forward to gather around God's table and eat the bread that reminds us of Christ's body broken for us. And drink the juice and remember his bloodshed for our sins.
as we head into Christmas this week, let's feast well together. In Luke 15, we read, We must celebrate with a feast, for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost and now is found. So the party began. Crossbridge, this week, may we truly feast and party together, because now we are found. God bless. Have a great week, and we'll see you this Saturday at 4 to party together.